Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 77, the book of Matthew, chapter 23, the second continuation. Well, because I had the great privilege of being raised in a Christian household from my earliest age, my family and I spent every Sunday in church. And child psychologists and most parents, especially moms, can verify that even when a child isn't paying the best attention, it's quite astounding how much they hear, how much they store away, often subconsciously. And during church services, even when I was coloring some masterpiece, Upon the church program, usually using a hymnal as a suitable table. As the preacher spoke, I too absorbed things that just became part of my understanding of Christianity without even knowing it was occurring. And during that era when the church still talked about sin, one of the things that took root within me was a sin is a sin is a sin. Any sin, no matter how trivial, is an offense to God. And so in that respect, there's little difference between stealthily sliding a nickel off my father's dresser to buy a candy bar than there is in a brazen-armed brazen robbery of a bank. And while this thought probably kept me from escalating my childhood criminal career into pilfering dimes, as it turns out, learning God's Torah reveals that this nearly unconscious belief I had of all sins being equal in God's eyes wasn't entirely true. Now, because the New Testament assumes that we already have the knowledge and wisdom of the Torah as our foundation for understanding, then when we read about Yeshua's many encounters with his fellow Jews and his numerous confrontations with the Jewish religious authorities, it is within the principles of the Torah and that broad Jewish cultural context of understanding that we must comprehend his words. So, as we continue today in Matthew chapter 23, and Jesus is pronouncing the, the seven woes upon the synagogue leadership, the Pharisees, we're going to do it by adding in more instruction about what his words would have meant in the cultural background of his first century Jewish listeners who knew of nothing but the instruction of the Old Testament, since that's all that existed in Christ's era. Because that is exactly the intended meaning that we're to absorb and to act upon, even though we must adapt that to apply in the 21st century. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. We're going to read from verses 23 to the end. Matthew 23, starting at verse 23. Woe to you uh, hypocritical Torah teachers and parshim, Pharisees. You pay your tithes of mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah. Justice, mercy, trust. These are the things you should have attended to without neglecting the others. Blind guides, straining out a gnat, meanwhile swallowing a camel. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean too. Woe to you, Torah teachers and parashim! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look fine on the outside, 
but inside are full of dead people's bones and all kinds of rottenness. How likewise you appear to people from the outside to be good and honest. Inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy far from Torah. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You build tombs for the prophets. You decorate the graves of the Zadokim, the holy men. And you say, had we lived when our fathers did, we would never have taken part in killing the prophets. In this you testify against yourselves that you are worthy descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Now go ahead and finish what your fathers started. You snakes, sons of snakes, how can you escape being condemned to Gehenom? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and Torah teachers. Some of them you will kill. Indeed, you will have them executed on stakes as criminals. Some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, and so on you will fall the guilt for all the innocent blood that has ever been shed on earth. From the blood of innocent Hebel to the blood of Zechariah ben Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Yes, I tell you, all this will fall on this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you, leaving it desolate, for I tell you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. This begins what is called the fourth woe. It is the fourth of seven. And as a reminder, in our last meeting, I likened the meaning of woe to the word plague. Now, while not intending to suggest that the meaning of those two words are the same, but rather only paint a better picture in our word minds, but interestingly, the Baal Shem Tov, Hebrew version of Matthew begins with the words oilachem, which has a meaning that sort of combines the words pain with war. It's a rarely used Hebrew word. It, it's more than a strong indictment of the Pharisee leadership. It's a severe divine judgment pronounced upon them that I think was meant to call to mind the plagues of judgment that God sent upon Egypt many centuries earlier. I also imagine that on the Ramez level, that's the hint level of interpretation, the Jewish leaders and the listening crowds were not meant to miss the connection. That, the, that just as the plagues were delivered upon Egypt to affect the leadership, the Pharaoh, in such a way as to cause the, the release of God's people from their burdensome bondage that they might go and properly worship him, so it is that Christ is pronouncing a plague upon the Pharisee leadership that they might release God's people from their burdensome traditions that were keeping them, keeping them away from proper worship of him. And therefore, in a certain sense, I think Yeshua is implying a similarity between what the Pharisee leadership were doing to the Jewish people to what Pharaoh did to all of Israel. Now, Yeshua says that the scribes and the Pharisees pay their tithes of mint and dill and cumin. Now, while the requirement to tithe upon the produce of the land is contained in the law of Moses, the reality is that mint, dill, uh, dill and cumin are spices and were not classified as food or produce of the field per se. Rather, it had become another tradition that even the spices that grew, some of them wildly and not through cultivation, although 
some of them were expensive to purchase, they were to be tithed upon. Now, since tithing is a subject that I very infrequently talk about, we're going to take just a few moments to do so. I must say in advance, it is perhaps the topic that gets some Christians more visibly perturbed because we so badly don't want to hear it or obey it. Now, most produce of the field was tithed at the rate of one-tenth. Leviticus 27.30 All the tenth given from the land, whether from planted seed or fruit from trees, belongs to Adonai. It is holy to Adonai. However, such giving and gifts, korban in Hebrew, were not as straightforward as this statement in Leviticus makes it seem. There were different rates for different kinds of produce or animals and for different times, but it was never less than one-tenth. We're not going to get into it today, but if you're really interested, you can learn about all that in the TorahClass.com lessons on the book of Leviticus. Now, over time, as Hebrew society evolved and fewer people were rural farmers and more were city-dwelling merchants and tradesmen as they scattered as far distances from the temple that made regular sacrifices and offerings impossible, then the standards and the means of tithing also evolved. Thus, a general standard of 10% of either the actual harvest or the value of the harvest or whatever one's labors and business produced was to be given to the temple. The concept of money, coins as being frozen labor that could be given instead of produce or animals was created in a very good way to look at it, to my estimation. Now, although some of that tithe became diverted to the synagogue, it was not in any official way that is known nor that the temple would have sanctioned. Thus, tithing is a word that combines the idea of biblically mandated giving with the rate of giving at a minimum of 10%. It was the standard in Yeshua's time. It has carried over to Christianity from as far back as it can be traced. So yes, you and I have a biblically mandated, Old and New Testament mandated instruction to give at least 10% of our increase. But to whom or to what do we give? That question is not so easily or honestly answered. The mandate was certainly not, in Bible times, meant to be taken as any religious organization. <clears throat> and yet, because there is no temple to give to today, nor has there been for nearly 2,000 years, and because the body of God worshipers has grown exponentially, is present in the farthest reaches of our planet, and the organizations that were created to lead God's people, both church and synagogue, have evolved, then while the concept of tithing lives on, the exact application of it has had to evolve as well. To my way of thinking, tithing 10% of our increase, our incomes, to a specific or to a various, to various believing organizations properly represents the spirit of the law of tithing. Now, I've spoken much to you over the years about the synagogue in ancient times. And one of the several things that I said was that the synagogue can nowhere be found in the Bible as a God-ordained religious organization. Rather, biblically, the temple and its activities were not just the center, but the only authorized place of Israelite religious leadership, ritual, and communal meeting. 
The synagogue concept was born out of necessity. The conditions necessitating it essentially were caused by human sin. It was created by the Jews that were hauled off to Babylon. The temple had been destroyed. The priesthood disbanded. So the Jews had all means of proper worship and ritual, and especially of sacrificing to atone for their sins, ended. This was a direct and intended punishment from God, and he used a foreign nation and a foreign king to deliver this punishment. Thus, we can read in Daniel that Daniel instituted the practice of praying three times per day towards Jerusalem. Then we read of the disheartened exiles meeting together, and out of this, the synagogue system was eventually born. It was an alternative means of having communal worship and prayer, yet it was an entirely man-made organization. It was not ruled by Levite priests. Instead, it was ruled by laymen. In Christ's day, those laymen were the Pharisees and the scribes. You know, it's fascinated me that by the time we get to the New Testament era, the synagogue had become the unquestioned center of Jewish communal worship, prayer, and learning. And although no sacrificing occurred at the synagogue, it played a prominent role in everyday Jewish life, religious or otherwise. Yeshua was raised, Jesus was raised under the synagogue system because that was the core of Jewish culture. Never do we find any New Testament writer, nor Yeshua himself, ever speaking against the synagogue system as something that ought not to exist, even though the temple was back and operating under Levite priests. Nor was the synagogue portrayed as being against God's will. Now, I tell you all this to say that we must look upon the church similarly. The church as an organized institution is not God-mandated. In fact, it's not even an offshoot of the God-ordained temple. It's modeled after the man-made synagogue system. Biblically speaking, the body of Christ is people. It's you. It's not buildings. It's not even organizations or institutions. Thus, some Christians say that when going strictly by the letter of the biblical law, they have no obligation to give to the church because the church, as defined today, is merely an institutional organization that has infrastructure that the leadership seeks to support. I would agree, except that Jesus taught us to look beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of it. So what I'm about to say to you is my opinion and interpretation, but I have no doubts about it. We are to support the organizations that serve the body of Christ. That might mean the local fellowship you attend, an online one that you follow, some good believers-based organizations that do God's work on earth. I also think that first and foremost, if you regularly attend a local fellowship, that's your first and most important point of tithing because, as you must be aware, it is quite costly to operate a fellowship organization and structure in modern times, especially in the West. <clears throat> Choosing not to tithe at all absolutely is a sin. Tithing is not optional. The most often used biblical quote for this, because it's simple, it's unequivocal, it's straightforward, comes from the prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Since the days of your forefathers, you have turned away from my laws and you've not kept them. Return to me, and then I'll return to you, says Adonai Sepaot. But you ask, in what respect are we supposed to return? 
Can a person rob God? Yet you rob me. You ask, how have we robbed you? In tithes and in voluntary contributions. A curse is on you. It's on your whole nation because you robbed me. Bring the whole tenth into the storehouse so that there will be food in my house and then put me to the test. Says that on Isaiah vote. Just see if I won't open for you the floodgates of heaven and pour out for you a blessing far beyond your needs. Now, because I'm not in the habit of sugarcoating things, here's the bottom line. If you want to try to find a way around this commandment, be my guest. Many of you do. Oh, I have to pay for my child's college. Oh, I got to get my car fixed. Oh, but I really need a vacation. Do I pay on the gross or the net of my paycheck? Since I don't know, I think I'll put it off. I'll start tithing when I get a better job. I mean, I can't tell you the same dozen or so reasons thought to be good justifications that I hear so often for not tithing. The duty to tithe is not because I tell you to, but because God tells you to. And the consequences for not tithing are yours to bear, and you are promised by God you will bear them. But it also negatively affects the body and the fellowship that you're part of. And the many things that could and should have been done in Christ's name to show His love and His mercy to so many who need it. There, that's your tithing sermon for the year. So, after acknowledging that the Pharisees are punctilious about their tithing, even to the point of tithing on spices that they acquire to flavor their food, Jesus then throws down the hammer. He says, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, namely justice, mercy, and trust. Other versions say, weightier matters of the law. And then they say, justice, mercy, and faith, or maybe faithfulness. Others replace mercy with kindness. But what are the weightier matters of the law? Does that mean harder, more difficult things? What law is being referred to? Jewish law? Holocaust? Or is it the law of Moses? So since they should, should they, they have not tithed Dill and Cumin and instead done these weightier things? No, says Christ. They indeed should have done them, but without neglecting the others. That is, they should have done justice, mercy, and a trust in addition to tithing. It's not an either-or scenario. It's both. But wait, I thought tithing on spices was Jewish tradition, while performing justice, mercy, and trust was Torah-based. See, the reality is that Christ is not telling them that their tradition on this matter is a bad thing. It's only that when they point to that as their demonstration of righteousness instead of doing justice, mercy, and trust, that's where the problem comes into play. I have little doubt that Yeshua is drawing upon Hosea for his indictment against them. Hosea 6, verses 4 through 7. Ephraim, what should I do to you? Judah, what should I do to you? For your faithful love is like a morning cloud, like dew that just disappears quickly. This is why I have cut them to pieces by the prophets, slaughtered them with the words of my mouth, 
the judgment on you shines out like a light. For what I desire is mercy, not sacrifices, knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. But they, just like men, have broken the covenant. They have been faithless in dealing with me. Look, tradition is fine so far as it goes, church or synagogue. But tradition can never be holy because it's man-contrived and not God-ordained. Traditions can be enjoyable. They can be beneficial, perfectly fine with God when they operate within the spirit of the law of Moses. It's when tradition, doctrine, and custom twist and turn or effectively replace God's commandments. That's when the trouble begins. And that is what Yeshua is accusing these Pharisees of. So what did the idea of weightier things mean to Jesus and to his listeners? Such a debate was not new to the Hebrew faith and continued well beyond his time. In the Targum Herios Berkot, we read, In the words of the law, there are some things light and there are some things heavy or weighty. But those weighty things they omitted and regarded those as there as light. Yes, they had no foundation in the law at all. And no wonder, since in the place last cited, they say that the words of the scribes, all of them are weighty. And the sayings of the elders are weightier than the words of the prophets. Now, while this quote is from much later Judaism, nonetheless, this is precisely what Yeshua was damning the Pharisees and the scribes for doing. They made their own rules and traditions more weighty in general than even the words of the biblical prophets. Further, they omitted what was truly weighty for their own thoughts on the matter. So another way of saying it is, within the context that Jesus and the rabbis taught about it, is that biblical law had been overridden by the edicts of other rabbis. It was reprehensible. It was a grievous sin. This is why Yeshua issued a woe, a painful and severe judgment against these leaders. Now, as to that weightier matter of justice, mercy, and faithfulness or trust, a good place to start is the prophet Micah who mirrors much of the sentiments expressed in Malachi. In Micah 6, 6-8, he says, With what can I come before Adonai to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves in their first year? Would Adonai take delight in thousands of rams with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Could I give my firstborn to pay for my crimes, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Human being, you've already been told what's good. What Adonai, what Adonai demands of you, no more than to act justly, love grace, and to walk in purity with your God. Now, part of the reason I wanted to use this passage is to show you how grace and love was always part of what God specs of mankind. Not just the Israelites, but it is also something that institutional Christianity has for centuries claimed was a new innovation, and it began only with Jesus. That is, see, the old God... Jehovah, well, he was just all about bloodshed, retribution, and anger. That, my friends, is an 1,800-year-old slander. That is, without biblical basis, 
And it was devised to put a wall of separation between Jews and Christians. Also notice how Micah says that all God demands of humanity, Hebrews and Gentiles, is to act justly, love grace, walk in purity. So, follow me. By the logic applied to a famous and most quoted section of the New Testament, a wrong logic, then here we have Micah abolishing the law in favor of justice, love, and grace, and walking in purity with God. Boom. I'm going to read to you a lengthy section of the book of Acts that will immediately be familiar to you, but I want you to consider it in the light of what Yeshua has just said and what Micah has said. What are the weightier matters of the law and what does God want of us all? Acts 15, 7 through 20. After a lengthy debate, Kepha, Peter, got up and said to them, Brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back, God chose me from among you to be the one by whose mouth the Gentiles should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. And God, who knows the heart, bore them witness by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. That is, he has made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their heart by trust. So why are you putting God to the test now by placing a yoke on the neck of these disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have had the strength to bear? No, it's through love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered, and it's the same with them. Then the whole assembly kept still as they listened to Barnabas, Barnabas and Shaul, that's Paul, tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. Yaakov, it's James in our Bibles, broke the silence to reply, Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Shimon has told us, that's Peter, Shimon Peter, has told us in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking from among the Gentiles a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophets are in complete harmony with this, for it's written, After this I will return, I will rebuild the fallen tent of David, I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, that is, all the Gentiles who have been called by my name. Says Adonai, who is doing these things. All this has been known for ages. Therefore, my opinion is we should not put obstacles in the way of Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Now, can you see the similarity of thought and principle here between this and what Micah had to say? Just as Micah was in no way abolishing the law for either Hebrews or Gentiles, neither was Christ's brother James when he spoke of things that Gentile believers ought to do and not to do. Rather, both scenarios, both men were instructing in what? The weightier matters of the law that had to be observed, and pushing the lighter matters to the background, but only as a relative measurement. Not doing away with the one and replacing it with the other. What did Christ just say about that? In Matthew 23, verse 23, these are the things you should have attended to without neglecting the others. See, this is the mindset with which we are to approach obeying God. Obey the Torah, obey the prophets, and obey God's Son, Yeshua. Not one or the other, all. Yet the reality is that we'll always be faced with choices in this world when we must put the weightier ahead of the lighter, but without neglecting either. Nor should we pretend that the weightier has replaced the lighter. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You know what these, all, these terms all have in common? They're relationship terms. Relationship terms. But we have to know what justice is. 
what mercy is, what faithfulness is. We have to know it in God's eyes. So we study first the Torah and the prophets to find out. Yeshua sums up in verse 24 what the synagogue leader's condition is in his estimation. What are they? Blind guides. They think they are leading others, but in fact they don't know what they're doing or where they're going. They strain out a gnat and they swallow a camel. Now, while this is an illustration of a tiny creature versus a large creature, there's also other elements at play here. First, you see, both creatures are deemed by the law of Moses as prohibited to eat. They're not kosher. Second, when the text speaks of straining out a gnat, it's envisioning the common daily process of straining wine through a fine cloth prior to it being put into containers. The straining was to remove things like grape seeds and dirt and debris and, of course, insects before it was put into containers. So the mental picture Yeshua painted was as though a camel had fallen into the wine vat. But the Pharisees didn't bother to strain it out. They just went right ahead and swallowed it. Now, obviously, it was meant as a metaphor. And it was simply another way of Christ demonstrating the weightier versus lighter principle and not getting the two of them mixed up. This was in order to get his point across. Verse 25 now moves us on to woe number five. Once again, Jesus says that the Pharisees pay attention to the less important while neglecting the more important. More metaphor is used. Christ is not talking about actual cups and plates. This isn't about performing proper ritual law that Jesus perfectly upholds, by the way. Rather, this is about external ritual cleanness that ignores the more important internal state of a person. This continues Yeshua's theme of hypocrisy, the intentional outward appearance of righteousness while inside being full of wickedness and deceit. Now, just so we don't wander off and begin to apply willy-nilly what Jesus said, this is entirely aimed at leadership. It's not that hypocrisy doesn't occur at every level of human social order, but this entire chapter is pointed directly to leadership because of the effect leaders in a position of power and authority have. They can ruin not only themselves, but many others as well. Now, while politics seems to be never-ending talk over coffee or a dinner table, as important as politics are to our earthly well-being, our spiritual well-being is far more important. And often it's directly tied to what we see and learn from our spiritual leaders. Not because spiritual leaders have the power to determine our condition before God, but they can sure influence it for the better or the worse. They can convince us of lies to believe in that they can trap us in the very spiritual bondage that Christ came to free us from. You know, political beliefs cannot anywhere be found in Christ's teaching. Only spiritual beliefs. Bottom line, be very cautious whom you choose to learn your spiritual beliefs from. Should it turn out that they prove themselves clean on the outside but wicked on the inside, run from them. Render everything you've ever heard from them suspect. Bibles are cheap and easily available in the West, almost everywhere else too. 
All you have to do is invest your time to read the truth for yourself. Measure your chosen teachers against God's Word, and if it does not line up, find a different teacher. The same point is more or less made in the sixth woe. It begins verse 27. Yeshua employs the metaphor of whitewashed tombs to describe the false pretense of the synagogue leadership. Now, I cannot say it often enough. Jesus is in no way indicting all scribes and Pharisees as a class of leaders, only the ones before him and the ones that are like them. Nor is he indicting Israel. This has nothing to do with Israel or even the common Jews in general. Likely, the whitewashed is referring to plaster being added to some tombs as an ornamental feature. You know, it's, it's, it's all about beautification. And during this period, the Jews, for some reason, became very interested in creating beautiful tombs for the bones of their prophets long dead and gone. Really, they were monuments. I always wondered, could it be out of a sense of collective guilt? In fact, one of the most outstanding examples of this lay below the city of David in Jerusalem today, Zechariah's tomb, which you can go visit. It is known to have been built during this period of time and very probably was already built by Yeshua's day. Now, I point this out because of what we're going to encounter after a few more verses. After the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, when the priesthood was again disbanded, and a few years later the rabbis became the new and undisputed leadership of the Hebrew faith, when Judaism could finally be said to officially have be the name of the Jewish religion, revered rabbis often were placed into expensive and ornate burial chambers upon their death. Sometimes they were Ornamentation can be shocking to see. In a fascinating place in Israel called Beit Shorim, there's some tombs housing the remains of wealthy or influential rabbis that you can visit. I've taken several tour groups there. Much can be learned from this visit. Indeed, plaster, whitewash, was used on the tomb walls. And the individual sepulchers Many of the residents lay in were amazingly ordained and made out of expensive materials. In fact, some were ornamented with recognized pagan symbols that reveals the direction that Judaism had already begun to drift. So the metaphor Yeshua was using of whitewashed, white plastered tombs was not hyperbole. It was something that was already happening. Now, woes 4, 5, and 6 are sort of summed up and their meaning made abundantly clear in case there was any doubt about it. Yeshua says in verse 28, Likewise, you appear to people from the outside to be good and honest, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and far from Torah. So to be certain that the Pharisees and the crowds did not confuse his metaphors in place of the actual subjects of his ire, there can be no doubt remaining. It is instructional to see this verse in other Bible versions. The King James Version says that Pharisees are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The NAB says they are full of hypocrisy and evildoing. The word that all of these versions are translating is anomia, the Greek anomia. It means without law, lawless. Certainly a person that is lawless must be full of iniquity. But saying iniquity or evil circumvents the literal meaning. 
It means not following the law of Moses. Or close enough is the complete Jewish Bible saying of far from Torah. Same idea. Lawless or lawlessness is the most literal translation. And when used in the Bible, it always means only one thing. Disobeying the law of Moses. Iniquity or evil doing leaves open the question of the cause of the iniquity. The cause of the evil doing. Or what the standard even is for determining it. I'll leave it to you to decide the motives of Christian translators that chose to obscure the meaning of this rather straightforward Greek word that is attempting to communicate a very well understood Hebrew thought and concept. Then in verse 29 is woe number seven. Yeshua says that it was their fathers who killed these prophets for whom they had recently been making these fine tombs, which was but another act of hypocrisy. Of course, the Pharisees say that had they been alive at the time, they never would have participated in such a thing. Right. In fact, in simply denying what they would have willingly done, it is only further evidence of the true evil nature of their inward selves. See, hypocrisy can be hidden for a long time, but not forever. Go ahead, finish what your father started. Yeshua was saying he knows full well how this is all going to end. Their fathers, meaning the ancestors of the Pharisees, are to be blamed for killing the prophets, something which Jesus is likening himself to. And while the term killing is used in most English Bibles, in reality, those prophets weren't killed. They were murdered. Let's get it right. I must say, this feels a little like Christ is baiting those Jewish religious leaders into murdering him. Well, this brings up a thorny issue the Cranfield and Davies at least touch on in their commentary, and I think it is worthwhile for us to confront. There is a heavy implication here that God stores up his wrath, and then at some breaking point, he lets fly with devastating results. This has led to a doctrine within Christianity that more or less says that God's wrath in the end times will only come when God has become sufficiently fed up with Israel's disobedience and faithlessness towards him. Interestingly, Judaism teaches that God's wrath will only fall when he has exhausted his patience with the Gentile world. Now, while it seems to be biblically true, that God will use some measure of evil within both Israel and the world in general to decide when to finally act in full divine vengeance, our current passage remains as not about Israel, not about Gentiles. It's about the Jewish religious leaders. So Christ says in verse 23, you snakes, you sons of snakes, how can you escape being condemned to Gehenom. Whoa, I don't want to be on the wrong side of matters when standing before Yeshua on Judgment Day. Now those words alone are enough to melt us right where we stand or sit. So what can only be implied here is that these leaders that Yeshua was talking to are already judged. There's no escape, there's no hope for them. Enough is enough. God's had it with them. They are hereby judged as irredeemable. Yes, dear friends, there does come a time when God can make a decision to let us rot in our sins without the possibility of atonement. And the instant of our death isn't necessarily that moment when all is decided. See, I don't know where that line is. I don't know when that moment comes. 
And it is not a one-size-fits-all matter. So my advice, don't come near enough to that line. You have to worry about it. Or try to time <laughs> when you finally give up your wicked ways and the sins you enjoy best to follow Jesus, like the way some of us try to time the stock market. Trust Christ now. Obey the Father now. And the rest will work itself out just fine. Being condemned to Gehinom was a Hebrew expression. It meant to be judged to the garbage dump where the fires never stopped burning in order to destroy the disgusting things that were in it. It was considered as about the worst thing that could happen to someone upon their death. I'd say around half the English translations that I checked use the word hell instead of Gehenna. The word hell is not present there. Hell is a Christian concept of what this statement is thought to represent. Sometimes we will find the Greek word Hades used at this point in the New Testament. Hades is the Greek underworld of the dead. That's not used here either. See, Gehenna is the word used. So again, Yeshua is not only using the vernacular of the day, he's also using something that was present. It was known in his day. I mean, he was in Jerusalem at the moment, where Gehenom, the Valley of Hinnom, and the famous and always smelly burning garbage dump was located. Well, we've now completed the woes section of Matthew 23. This chapter has been all about the theological disputes that Yeshua is having with the synagogue authorities, or more accurately, about him arguing against Jewish halakha that these authorities foisted upon people. Something that had gone much too far. What long ago began as reasonable customs good traditions, born out of trying to be fully obedient to the law of Moses, it had become an article of corrections and additions formulated by the Jewish sages and religious leaders. Naturally, this was not how the halakha was characterized by the leaders. Rather, was it said to merely be a proper interpretation of God's word. And by the way, much of their interpretations were correct. The traditions Yeshua was arguing against would become even more formalized as the centuries passed, and those who formulated those traditions would soon gain absolute control over the entire Hebrew religious system. And it remains so to this day. Okay, we'll finish up chapter 23 next time.